Hello, I'm Jen Hale Christie, and you're listening to Preach Her, a podcast for people who love Jesus or are open to it. This is season one, episode three, and we are continuing through the gospel according to Luke and asking the question, who is Jesus? Last week, we looked at the prophecy surrounding Jesus's birth and the significance of the fact that God went outside of the temple, outside of the city walls, went through the territory of the hated neighbors to make God's home in the womb of a young unwed girl. We saw how from the very beginning, God was taking God's good news outside the seat of organized religion, the temple, outside the holy city, Jerusalem, passing right by the marginalized neighbors, out into the countryside and into the body of a young woman, nearly the last place we would have expected God to go. We saw how from the very beginning, God's good news wasn't going to be what we expected. There were some significant statements made about who this baby would be. The angel Gabriel was not shy about telling us that this baby who would be conceived by the Holy Spirit would be the Son of God and would sit on David's throne forever. And we saw Mary, who didn't totally understand what all that meant, but responded in faith and humility, saying, Let it be with me according to your word. The few paragraphs that make up chapter 2 are all that Luke gives us about Jesus' childhood. We have the famous story of his birth, no room at the inn, born in a manger, shepherds tending to their flocks who are visited by an angel saying the Messiah has just been born, and the shepherds in turn go to visit the baby. When the shepherds announce what the angel had foretold about who this baby was, Luke only gives us one person's response to this news. The camera zooms in on Mary who treasures all these words and ponders them in her heart. Mary and Joseph observe the laws by observing a time of purification, taking the baby to be circumcised and named Jesus, the name that the angel Gabriel told Mary this baby would receive, and presenting him at the temple in Jerusalem, along with offering a sacrifice. And at the temple, we meet two interesting characters. The first is a guy named Simeon, who had received a word from the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die before he got to see God's Messiah, God's chosen one, the one who would save Israel. Again, the camera zooms in on Mary, marveling at what is said about Jesus. The second person who comes to see baby Jesus is a prophet named Anna, who's been living at the temple, worshiping and praying and fasting. When she sees Jesus, she praises God and starts telling everyone about him. A crowd gathers and she speaks to everyone who's fed up with the way things have been going, how they've been living under the thumb of various foreign rulers for hundreds of years, how the religious and cultural practices of their foreign overlords and neighbors have seeped into their holy city and their holy traditions. She preaches good news to everyone who's been longing for Jerusalem to be redeemed. The time is near. Luke sums up the next nearly 12 years of Jesus's life by saying this, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. We don't get any other details until we get this one story from when he was 12 years old. From Luke 2, verses 41 through 52. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. 
When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. The word of the Lord. That's it. That's all Luke tells us about Jesus's childhood. And when the story picks up again, he's a grown adult being baptized by his cousin, John, and starting his ministry at age 30. All those untold stories really get my curiosity going. You know, what was Jesus like as a child? What was his family life like? What was it like to be the mom or the dad of Jesus? We learn elsewhere that he had siblings. I mean, what was his life like in their household? Did he get along with his siblings, his parents? He was obviously a good student of the Torah, since people were amazed with his understanding from a young age. What was adolescence like for him? Did he get teased or bullied? What were his hobbies and his habits? What did he spend his time doing? Did he have lots of friends or was he more of a loner? And what about young adulthood? When all of his peers were getting married and having babies, what was he doing? Was he ridiculed for never marrying? Was he the weird guy who just kept living with his parents well beyond a reasonable age without any discernible aspirations? These are historical questions, and they're important too, but I want to do some theological inquiry. There's so much we don't know, but there are also some curious things we hear as we lean in close to the text. Time after time, when Mary hears what people say about Jesus, she holds them in her heart, turning them over and over, wondering what they mean. Since before Jesus was born, Mary's been told that he's destined for greatness. He will be the Messiah, the one through whom God's salvation comes, and that he will be called Son of God. And when we hold those two things together, you know, on the one hand, all that Luke doesn't tell us about Jesus's childhood, and then on the other hand, Mary's persistent heart pondering about who Jesus was— When we hold those two things together, the picture that begins to emerge for me is one of a rather ordinary life. You know, I think he had a pretty normal childhood and adolescence. Nothing much to report, except for that one time, of course, when he mysteriously stayed behind in the temple at age 12. And I think that that's included to show us that, at least from that age, Jesus started to have a vague notion of his own identity. He was starting to realize who he was, what he was here on this earth to do, his purpose. But at the same time, it was confusing for his parents. They didn't understand who he was and who he was becoming. He'd always been their son. And sure, there were those extraordinary circumstances surrounding his birth and the whole visit from the angel Gabriel— There were moments when someone would flash in and make some big claim about who their child was and who he would be. 
But overall, they were just living their normal life, working, doing the laundry, preparing meals, visiting with their neighbors, washing the dishes, and trying to raise decent human beings. They were too close. They couldn't see who he really was. From the time he's born, his parents follow the prescriptions of their religious tradition, having him circumcised and named at the right time, presenting him to God and offering the traditional sacrifice, and making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year to celebrate Passover. They're doing all the right things, but they're missing what's right in front of them. In chapter 3, we meet John, Jesus' cousin, in the wilderness, and while he's there, Away from the cities and towns and people and family and everything that's familiar and ordinary, the word of God comes to him and he starts preaching about repentance and baptism and forgiveness. But when the crowds descend on him asking to be baptized, he senses their repentance isn't full. It's not true. It's, it's not real. They're still depending on their status, their good lineage, their ethnic and religious heritage. And he says, it's not about that. You can't rely on those things and overlook the things in your life that need to be corrected. Starting in verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. In other words, be a good and decent human being. Take care of others who are in need. Don't cheat or steal or lie. Picking up in verse 15, as the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, we have an announcement about Jesus's identity, hinting that he is the Messiah, the one everyone's been waiting for. And we get to witness Jesus's baptism. In verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying— The heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Did the crowd see this? Was this irrefutable proof that there was more to this Jesus than anyone realized? Was this the moment when Jesus realized who he was and what his mission was here on earth? The next thing Luke tells us is about Jesus starting his ministry. So at least for Luke, there seems to be some significance to Jesus being baptized and God affirming who Jesus is, his true identity, and then Jesus stepping out into the unknown. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and he seems to go straight from the baptism in the Jordan River out into the wilderness, and he's led by the Spirit there. He's out there for 40 days, during which time he's fasting. He's not eating anything, and he's being tempted by the devil. If you are who you say you are, then do this. Turn these stones to bread. I know you're hungry. They said you would sit on David's throne. So say yes to ruling over all these kingdoms that I'm offering you. Prove to everyone who you really are. 
Do a spectacular trick in the sight of all the religious elite, and then everyone will know your power. In each instance, he's tempted to step outside of his identity in order to prove himself. He's tempted to seize power in order to satisfy the hunger of his body, the wants of his mind, and the desires of his ego. But instead, he resists each time, resting in and ultimately proving his identity as God's beloved son. After he successfully resists each temptation, he returns to Galilee, the general area that he grew up in, and that's where he begins his ministry. And people are actually pleased with the things that he says at first. But then he goes to Nazareth, the small town where he was actually raised, where all of his childhood friends still are and his family members. And we might at first think that that is a safe place to start. I mean, it's familiar, it's known, it's home. But if we think that, we'd be wrong. Because when he goes into the synagogue and reads from the scroll of Isaiah, as he had done many times before, the initial warm reception there turns cold in a matter of seconds. From chapter 4, starting in verse 16, When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. But hold on, this is where things head south. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, There were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath and Sidon. Remember the people of Sidon? They were Gentiles and they were despised. Verse 27, there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Again, another Gentile who was despised by the Jews. Verse 28, when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. So what's going on here? They're clapping and raising hands when he reads from Isaiah, but then when he reminds them of a few stories of Israelite prophets, they go into Hulk mode. You see, they like what he's sharing from Isaiah because they always assumed it was about them. The message about releasing the oppressed and setting captives free, that's us. We're the ones living under Roman rule, and we love hearing about a time when we'll have one of our own on the throne again. Yeah, we want release. Good news for the poor? Well, we have plenty of poor among us, and we like the idea that someone's finally going to do something about it. Amen, brother. But wait. 
Jesus knows that's what they're thinking, which is why he picks these two stories to demonstrate what he really means. You guys, remember when there was a huge famine and all of our people were dying? God's prophet wasn't sent to our people. He was sent to one of them. Remember when there were lots of our people living with painful, debilitating diseases who couldn't even go in the temple? Well, God's prophet wasn't sent to our people. He was sent to one of them, the other, those people we don't like, the ones who aren't like us, who don't look like us, talk like us, eat like us, or worship like us. Remember when God's prophets were sent to those people? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you I'm here to do. And it fills them with such tremendous rage that they become a murderous mob trying to kill him. I mean, things got real, real fast. He's not accepted among his own because his mission extends beyond his own. His message isn't accepted by these insiders because it includes the outsiders. And all of this has me thinking, wondering. You know, in whatever spheres of life we occupy where we are the insiders, what is right in front of us, but we're missing it because we're too close? In what ways are we missing the good news because we think it only applies to insiders? In what ways are we ignoring or denying or misunderstanding or misrepresenting the good news so that it's not even good news for everyone? Church in America, God's community is bigger than you think. It's more inclusive than you believe. It's more diverse than you are trying to be. Some of the things you're going to war and splitting over, those are hardly on God's radar. And the things that are closest to the heart of God, for some of you, those are hardly more than a tiny line item in your budget. We've got a lot of work to do and a lot to undo. But let's start by not acting like those insiders in Jesus' home church who couldn't stand to hear that God loves even your most hated neighbor, that God is for them, sending help to them, and bringing them into God's community. We can do better. We must do better. If today you find yourself on the outside, without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, May you lean into the truth that you are always welcome in God's community. And may those who wear the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise considered faith leaders, may you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. If something was stirred in you today, reach out. Hearing from you helps to shape the future of this podcast and this community. You can email me at jenhalechristie at gmail.com or connect on Instagram or Facebook at jenhalechristie. Thank you to all who have already emailed, texted, and connected online. I am so grateful to hear from you, to know that you're listening, and to hear especially like what is specifically speaking to you right now, what you're hearing, what you're needing, what you're experiencing in your community. I, I love hearing that. So thank you. And please keep reaching out. It helps others to find this podcast if you will subscribe, like, and review it on iTunes or whatever player you're using. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.